I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 3. Pretty simple to find, being in Genesis. We're going to continue uh, in our study of Genesis. We're going to look at the entire chapter of Genesis 4 today, which deals with the story of Cain and Abel and the further effects of sin from Cain's father, Adam, and the further effects of Cain's choices. Genesis chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'll ask you a question. Have you ever had deja vu? It's not a sign that you were in the matrix. Scientific groups have conducted polling asking Americans if they have experienced this phenomenon, and 70% claim that they have. To me, that seems a little low. It seems like more people experience uh, deja vu, but that's a significant majority. Deja vu is a French phrase that literally means already seen. 1983, one scientist offered a fancy definition of deja vu. Uh, He says that it is an any subjectively inappropriate impression of familiarity of the present experience with an undefined past. To put it in more layman's terms, it's when your current experiences feel like a memory. But it's not just familiarity. There's a certain feeling that accompanies deja vu, a certain eerie feeling. It's a different way of taking in your surroundings. Deja vu isn't something you can just perform on command. We can't force ourselves to feel on the fly like we have experienced an actual memory. Doing some reading on the subject, though, I found that there are some people who experience deja vu regularly. In fact, almost daily. There's a New York Times article from 2006. It gives several examples. One is Pat Shapiro, who was in her late 70s at the time, lives in a colonial house in Connecticut with her husband. Often she has familiarity with a place or a situation that logically, at least, she's had no previous encounter with. For example, she'll claim to recognize details of restaurants she's never been to before, or even greet total strangers as if she's met them. Kind of cute. The article details others whose experiences are even more extreme, some who refuse to go to the doctor or read the newspaper or watch the news because they're convinced that they have experienced those things already. People have wondered about deja vu for thousands of years. Augustine alludes to something similar to this in his book of Confessions. Authors like Leo Tolstoy and Charles Dickens touch on it in their novels. But scientists and psychologists still haven't landed on how to exactly explain it. There's no consensus. There are several different explanations. There's the dual processing explanation. That's a then two normally separate brain processes are activated at the wrong time. So that's, it's as if you're playing back a memory while you're taking in stuff at the same time and you can't tell the difference between the two. There's memory explanations. That you're in some situation between a present situation and an actual memory. There's a familiarity between the two. So, for example, you see a chair that looks exactly like the chair at your grandmother's house, and all of a sudden the whole scene feels familiar. It feels like deja vu. There's the double perception explanation. 
We could just get distracted for a moment, and then when we snap back into it, what we just saw a few seconds ago already feels like a memory. This isn't a psychology lecture, uh, but I did take intro to psychology, so you could say I'm kind of qualified there. Um, and that's all the questions I'm going to answer about deja vu. To me, all those explanations make sense. They're probably all true in some, some way. I bring up deja vu because after reading Genesis 3 and then going into Genesis 4, boy, it just seems like deja vu. It seems eerily familiar. Now, it's not to the point of matching up detail for detail, but there are plenty of things that look the same, which make us wonder, didn't we just read that? Didn't that just happen? So Genesis 3, we see the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve's clear-eyed choice to go against God's commandment. We see their indifference and their deflecting response when God confronts them about their sin. And then we see God's response to their sin and to their choice. Genesis 4. We see the choice of Adam's son to sin. Then we see his indifferent and deflecting response to God when God confronts him about his sin. And he even confronts him in the same way he does his dad. Then we see how God pronounces a similar curse on Cain as he did on his parents. It's deja vu. This deja vu nature of humans, we just keep falling back into the same patterns of sin. It ups the ante a little bit. It ups the ante of the importance of knowing how to live before God. If the effects of sin are, are that bad, are that blinding, then how important is it to know how to live before God? That's summarized in our main point of the sermon today, which I hope is the main point of the passage. You'll find it printed in your bulletin. Main point, Genesis 4. Because of the effects and cycle of sin, it becomes especially important to know how to live before God. Now, how do we live before God? We're not going to answer all of the questions of how to do that. But what does Genesis 4 present us? Well, we live before God by worshiping God rightly, by repenting of our sin sincerely, and by casting our hope accurately. I'll put it in a way that's a little easier to remember. Uh, true hope, or um, excuse me, true worship, true repentance, and true hope. Those are going to be our three headings today. Let's look first at true worship, true worship. Let's begin in Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So a little bit of review of where we've been in Genesis. This is our third week in the book. Genesis means origins. And it's the origin of many key themes in the Bible. Of God's character, God's nature, of who humans are. It's the origin of sin. The origin of God's plan for our salvation to save us from our sin. The Bible is a grand narrative. That means it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Friends, this is the beginning. And because we have the whole story, we can know the beginning even better. So just like the rest of the story, the beginning of it is first about God. It's first about God, not about us. He alone exists in himself. He's dependent on no one and nothing. He's perfect on his own. God created the world for his glory And he created the world as good, including humans, those made in God's image. The male and female who have special capacities to relate to God in a unique way. Who have a capacity to reflect him in his nature. And therefore are charged with the office to rule the earth on God's behalf. What we saw last week in Genesis 3 is that God's image bearers, humans, failed to reflect God's image. We saw how sin first happened, and then we saw how God first handled sin. First humans, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey the one who made them and gave them life and thereby plunged all their descendants into the same cycle of sin. Despite all of this, God promised one day to crush Satan, the one who led them into sin, and to crush evil through a descendant of Adam and Eve. That's Genesis 3.15. So today, we ask, what will happen with the effects of sin? Will they keep on going? And at the same time, what will happen with the promise of God? That's the story of Genesis 4. That's the story of the rest of Genesis. And it's really the story of the rest of the Bible. What will happen with sin and what will happen with the promise of God? So we look at the first two verses. Kind of Moses, the human author of Genesis, gives his readers some context in the opening. Adam and Eve have children. There are a few things to notice here. You look at verse 1. You see that word new. New. It's a common euphemism for intercourse in Scripture, and it's intentional. Even after the fall, the sacred marital act is meant to be personal and intimate. One commentator notes that this verb is never used for animals. 
Notice some other things too. We notice how names often have significance for the outcome of a person's life. So the name Cain. Cain is something close to gotten in Hebrew, as Eve explains. This could be the child of promise that God promised in Genesis 3.15. But they don't know yet. But Eve seems to attribute Cain's birth to a cooperative effort between her and the Lord. I've gotten Cain with God's help. Some effort to her, some credit to God. Abel, on the other hand, means vapor or breath, which acts as a foreshadow of the length of his life. Abel, we also see, works with animals and Cain in the fields. No value given to either of those. But notice that even though the ground is cursed from Genesis 3, humans are still working the ground. But we're supposed to be talking about worship. The heading is true worship. We're getting there. We're getting there right now. I promise. We're talking about true worship. Both Cain and Abel present offerings to God. Now, there's been no instructions about how to do this. There hasn't been a lot written about what to do. You look at that word offering, where it's later used in the Bible. It's used to acknowledge the superiority or rule of the one who receives the offering. Acknowledging superiority. It's a clue to what the heart of worship is. In older English, the word worship was worth-ship, ascribing worth. And our hearts, every one of our hearts, are made to worship something. They're made to ascribe worth to something, to something that's bigger than ourselves, to something that is actually worthy of being ascribed worth. And friends, it's clear as day that there is nothing and no one more worthy of worship than God himself. So here, for Cain and Abel, they're both on some level seeking to show that God is worthy of honor and praise and glory. And for us, we show that God is worthy of honor and praise and glory, not just in our possessions, not just in in what we give, but friends, literally in everything we do, in how we live, in what we love, we show the worth we have, the, the place God has in our hearts, in everything we do. So by presenting offerings, Cain and Abel want to present acceptable worship to God. What is acceptable or true worship? A helpful way to define terms is to start with what it isn't. So children learn this skill of deductive reasoning in the classic game, Guess Who? I don't know if you've ever played Guess Who. It's a two-player game. Okay, You start with a bunch of characters. They're flipped up. And you pick one character that your opponent has to guess. And the characters don't all look the same. You've got men and women, different color hair, different color eyes, different color skin. And you have to guess who the player picked, who your opponent picked. Now, you can just be smart and just try to guess a random person. Or you can use deductive reasoning. See who the person isn't. So is the person a man? No, well, then you eliminate all the women and so forth. The same can be done with true worship. 
What is true worship? Well, what isn't true worship? Cain shows us that true worship is not outward religious duty and performance. True worship is not outward religious duty and performance. Take a, look, take a closer look at verses 3 and 4. Cain brings an offering from the fruit of the ground. Abel brings of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Somehow the Lord makes it abundantly clear that he accepted Abel's worship, but he didn't accept Cain's worship. Was this just a sorry sport, but your brother's was just better? Was that kind of that kind of moment? It wasn't about a competition. It was about their hearts. What each of them gave reflected the place God had in each of their hearts. Can you spot the difference between the two? Abel brought the best of what he had. He brought of his firstborn. He brought of their fat portions. Cain, on the other hand, wants God to accept his worship, but thinks that God can't see his heart behind his worship. All God wants him to do, he thinks, is show up, go through the motions, and go on with his life. Reminds me of a tip jar a little bit. I've made it clear that I like coffee, so when I go into a coffee shop, and it, in the rare moments when I pay in cash, I'm not using the Starbucks app to get more points. The rare moment I pay with cash, I think a tall pike place is $1.89. So I pay $2, I'm going to get $0.11 cents back. Now, I don't necessarily want $0.11 cents in my pocket for the rest of the day. So, I throw it in the tip jar. Now, I wasn't walking into the coffee shop anticipating and getting ready and eager to pay a tip. It wasn't my intention. It was more of an afterthought. But I get the added benefit of making the employees think that I'm a nice guy by giving a tip. <laughs> Worshiping God can't be like a tip jar. Treating God as an afterthought and thinking he is honored by you giving him whatever is left over, and not just with your money, friends, but with what you love and value. Friends, that's false worship. It misplaces the worth and honor that God deserves, and instead, it gives it to us. It's presumptuous in that it communicates that God's even lucky to get anything from us. It communicates that God is foolish and gullible, that he can't really see what's actually in our hearts, and that we can fool him with outward appearances. True worship, friends, is not treating God in this way. But as the narrative continues, we see that this false worship has consequences. False worship has consequences. Notice how God responds to Cain's offering. Look at verse 5. He has no regard for it. And why should he? As the Lord says repeatedly in Scripture, he does not delight in mere offerings. 
He delights in heart obedience. Those who delight to do his will. John Calvin comments on this truth saying, God requires not mere ceremonies of those who serve him, but he is satisfied only with sincerity of heart, with faith and holiness of life. So considering that Cain's eyes and heart were devoted supremely to himself, it's no surprise then when he doesn't get what he wants, he gets angry. Friends, anger is often the product of blows against our pride and our selfishness. I encourage all of us to examine what makes us angry. What makes you angry? And how are those things possibly connected to your pride? To insults against your pride. God responds to Cain's false worship by not accepting it. But notice that he doesn't leave Cain there. No. He gives Cain a word of hope and a word of warning. He gives Cain hope in that there is opportunity for him to repent. But he must change the place God has in his heart. If he doesn't do that, if he remains as he is, he will spiral down further into sin. That's the word of warning. You see, there's a reason why the first commandment is the first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all of your being. To have no other gods before him. When we fail in that, friends, literally the entire way we live is sinful. It affects everything else we do. We will not obey him or seek him in anything else we do if we do not love him first. That's the danger Cain is in. That's the word of warning. So in verse 7, God personifies this danger. It says, a life without supreme love for him, a life without true worship leads to sin, and sin wants to devour Cain. And it wants to devour each one of us. Like the serpent wanted to devour Adam and Eve. God tells Cain, it wants to devour you, but you must rule over it. Been on worship for a while. Remember where we are. Both Cain and Abel make offerings to God, and their offerings reflect the place that God has in their hearts. And false worship is mere outward performance that treats God as an afterthought rather than the king of glory. And God sees right through this. And holding God in this place will lead us to more and more sin. And God says we must rule over that way of living. Are you with me here? This is true Worship. And before we move on, I think we should briefly think about what it means to rule over sin. What it means to rule over this way of living, this way of false worship. Now, that's a huge topic. So I'm just going to give very, very broad strokes. Okay, if you want to know more, if you want to do some heavy lifting, okay, in how to rule over sin, then read John Owen's Overcoming Sin and Temptation. It will take you a long time. And it is very hard to read but I don't know of any more thoughtful book other than the Bible 
than John Owen's overcoming sin and temptation. How to rule over sin. We should think about this, friends. Four steps. Number one, recognize the danger. Recognize the danger. Anything can appear cute and harmless when it's young and it's new. A lion cub, you can hold it in your arms. It's cute. You can control what you want it to do. You keep feeding that lion cub. It's going to grow. You're no longer to be able to control it. And it's going to do what God made it to do. It's going to devour you. Friends, sin is modest at first. But it takes more and more and more. It's aim. What it aims for us is our destruction. Think of what sin would have you do if you continued down its path. John Owen writes, Sin aims always at the utmost. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. It's only in God's grace that this does not happen. Friends, recognize the danger of sin. Number two, recognize our inability. Recognize our inability. We're told to rule over sin. There's only one who has ruled over sin. That's Jesus Christ. We all have the disease of Cain. And without the death of Christ, there is no death of sin. There's no death of its guilt. There's no death of its power. So to worship God, to worship God truly, we must deal with our sin. And the only way, the only payment that's sufficient is Christ on the cross who died and rose again. But Christ didn't just die to put to death our sin. He rose again to give us a living hope that we can live to righteousness. So that we will not rule over sin without the power of the risen, sinless one living in us. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us new desires to love God and to hate sin. So recognize the danger, recognize our inability, but God's ability and God's grace to put to death sin and to live to righteousness. Number three, I recognize the danger, recognize our inability. Number three, destroy what's bad within us. Destroy what's bad within us. Even when we come to Christ, even when we are born again, indwelling sin remains in us, and if we have recognized its danger, then we are going to follow Paul's exhortation in Romans 8.13 to put to death the deeds of the body. It means you've got to keep your head on the swivel. It means you've got to be vigilant. It means watching what you desire. It means forming new habits. We need to destroy what's bad within us. Finally, number four, delight in what is good. Delight in what is good. We put off the old nature and we put on the new nature. We strive to love what God loves. Jesus said the, king, the kingdom of God 
He said the kingdom of God is like a field that's hidden, and we find it. And then we sell everything we have with joy because we got this. That's the kingdom of God. That's the good that we found. And Paul says, I regard everything else as rubbish, as literally dung compared to knowing Christ. Delight in what is good. Fight to make God your joy. And friends, what you put in your heart affects this. What you put in your heart affects this. What you put in front of your eyes affects this. Paul writes in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Recognize the danger. Recognize our inability. Destroy what's bad within us. Delight in what's good. True worship, friends, is delighting in God as Abel did by faith. And it's ruling over anything that is contrary to God and keeps us from that. Still got the rest of the chapter. Let's go on to true repentance. True repentance. Pick it up in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. How does Cain respond to God's word of hope and warning? How does he respond? Does he repent of his sin? Does he turn from his sin and turn back to God? Or does he remain in his sin? Well, he remains. And God's warning comes true. Sin devours Cain. In Cain's response, we see what true repentance isn't. What it means to truly turn from our sin. What it's not. We see that true repentance is not ignoring God. True repentance is not ignoring God. You ever see a little kid about to do something, about to do something bad, and they have that moment of decision. They lock eyes with you, and they gotta, you say, no, don't you do it. 
and they look at you square in the face, they know exactly what they're doing, and they do it. It's not that Cain didn't understand what the Lord said. No, this wasn't lack of head knowledge. It was lack of heart response. Is that he didn't want to do what the Lord said, so he ignored it. Friends, the road to true repentance, the road to true repentance begins with submitting to God's word. Begins with submitting to God's word. So Cain ignoring God, refusing to repent, and remaining in his sin resulted in the spiral downturn that led him to murder his brother. His brother. See how many times that word's repeated in this passage to just enhance the magnitude of this sin. To murder his brother. And because Cain renounces God, he renounces the one made in his image. And the fate of Abel, friends, shows us that just because you love the Lord doesn't mean your life will be free of suffering. Doesn't mean your life will be free of persecution. Instead of listening to God, Cain enacts vengeance on the one who affronted his pride. But like God confronted Cain's father, so does he confront Cain, seeking to draw him out in confession. God asked Cain, where is your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's arrogance isn't gone. And it shows us also that true repentance is not indifference. True repentance is not indifference. When a child does something wrong, they get called out on it, and they persist in smart aleck remarks. There's a good chance they haven't understood what they've done is wrong, and they haven't understood the weight of their sin. Instead of indifference, the Bible speaks of godly sorrow, of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Rather than indifference, this sorrow is not just over the consequences of sin. That's regret. Godly sorrow is sorrow over sin itself, over sin itself. It lasts more than a moment in the immediate aftermath of sin. Godly sorrow is the mark of a Christian to mourn over his or her sin that nailed Christ to the cross, that grieves our Lord, sin that is against God, the one who is God. Good, we mourn over our sin. Friends, sin grieves God, not just because God's stuck up. Sin grieves God because sin is what destroys the people he made. That's a big reason why sin grieves God. Godly sorrow. So friends, if you have never felt that way about your sin... Have you ever felt that godly sorrow? Ask God to help you to see sin as he sees it. Ask him to help you to see what it means to truly repent, to truly turn from your sin. And then see that God's provided a way to deal with your sin and to bring you back to himself through Christ and Christ alone. 
In him is forgiveness of sin. In him is freedom from sin. So friends, true repentance is not indifference. It is godly sorrow. So God comes back at Cain's sarcasm, and he is rightly outraged. He declares a curse upon Cain, again, deja vu. Cain alienated himself from God, and now God will alienate himself from Cain. We find Cain's complaint in verse 13. It says, my punishment, my punishment is too great to bear. He's convinced that someone's going to kill him and that God won't be able to do anything about this. Incredibly. Cain shows us that true repentance is not self-pity. True repentance is not self-pity. There's no contrition over what Cain's done. And incredibly, Cain feels sorry for himself while his brother's blood is still drying on the ground. He feels sorry for himself. Friends, the self-seeking nature of sin is blinding. It's blinding to the point it, it literally causes us to be irrational and stupid. This is what sin does. And yet, and yet, you see all the wrong Cain has done. And God shows as much possible grace as he can to one who is so unrepentant. He allows Cain to live out his lifespan. And he promises to protect him, the very thing that Cain doubts that God actually can do. And for us, God's grace in Christ means we don't have to wallow in self-pity. Jesus dying in our place causes us to at one time rejoice at our salvation and at the same time mourn over our sin. But God's grace in Christ does not mean we have to be paralyzed by our sin or our past. It does not mean we have to feel a constant guilt and constantly feel sorry about ourselves for how bad we were and feel that way to the point where we just can't do anything. God's grace in Christ means that Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sin, but also raised us to a living hope so that we can live a life removed from the power of sin. True repentance is not self-pity. It's an honest response to the grace of God. So the effects and cycle of sin have made it all the more important to know how to live before God. We've seen that in the areas of worship, the area of repentance, and now, very briefly, the area of hope. True hope. Verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So side note, it doesn't tell us who Cain's wife is, if you're wondering. There's no command about marrying within a family. And as Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about that. Pick it back up, verse 17. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, Methusael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zia. And Ada bore Jabal. 
He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zia also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zia, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son. And he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Keep that same pattern. Seeing what something is by seeing what it's not. True hope, true hope, friends, is not in people. True hope is not in people. Although God made people as the height of his creation and stamped his image on us, that image is now marred by sin. With the fall of Adam, sin becomes a disease that every descendant inherits. So we see with the line of Cain, they make advancements. There's great new technology, new cities, new tools, new instruments. What about their morality? Oh, if, if things from Adam to Cain went from bad to worse, they go from worse to catastrophic. Look at Cain's great-great-grandson, Lamech. He, he delights in doing evil. He's like Cain on steroids. He, he delights in having vengeance. And he shows the hopeless cycle produced by sin. There's a reality spoken of by Martin Luther King Jr. He said, The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. If I were to try to preach you a motivational sermon that gets you amped, gets you ready to go, ready to be a better person, then I could look at the line of Cain and I could tell you, man, God's calling you today to be a chain breaker. You got a bad family past, you don't have to follow in their footsteps. God has given you today a chance to be a chain breaker in your family. Now that could preach. You could really lean into that. It's not that it's necessarily untrue. But is it the intended meaning of what this is saying? Is it faithful to how this fits with the rest of the Bible? Mark Zuckerberg's been in the news a lot lately. He's the founder and CEO of Facebook, the social network. Uh, he's been surrounded in controversy over questionable practices of how his company uses their users' information. And just kind of the general negative side effects of Facebook. Zuckerberg's confident in the usefulness of social media because he believes that people are basically good. There's a lot we can interact with there. But at the end of the day, friends, that just simply isn't what the Bible presents. 
It's not what the Bible presents. Wow, none of us are as bad as we could be. None of us live up to what we were made to be. None of us are as bad as we could be, but none of us live up to what we were made to be. If we want hope to live with a perfect, holy, and sinless God forever, if we want hope for that, then that hope can't come from us. Someone has to stand in our place. Someone must wash us clean. That's why true hope is not in people, but in God. Closest chapter, we are told how God preserves a remnant for himself. That promise of a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, back in chapter 3, it seems lost. But God gives another Eve. He gives her another offspring, and the promise lives on. Interesting to note the difference between how Eve names Cain and how she names Seth. For Cain, Eve says that she's born a child with God's help. For Seth, Eve says God has appointed another. All credit goes to God this time. When we zoom out on the line of Seth, that same reality rings true for our hope, our salvation. All credit goes, not to us, to the Lord. When we zoom out on the line of Seth, we find another innocent one who was killed. As Abel's blood cried out from the ground, so does Jesus's. But the book of Hebrews says that it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice and vindication and punishment. And Jesus's blood does the same. And friends, because we have the disease of Adam and the disease of Cain, because we have sinned against the Lord, we have partook in the murder of Jesus, the Son of God. And his blood cries out for our justice, for our punishment. But you know what he says? Let that punishment fall on me. Not them. That's the better word. So when we read Genesis 4, and see that we haven't worshipped God, giving him the supreme place in our hearts. That we haven't ruled over sin. That we've ignored God. That we've been indifferent about our sin. That we've wallowed in self-pity. And we've attempted to heal ourselves, placing our, help, our hope only in ourselves. When we've seen all that, then we see where true hope really lies. In Christ who succeeded when we failed, who loved the Father perfectly, delighted to do his will, whose blood paid the penalty for the sin of all those who believe in him, and who rose and sent his spirit that we may begin to live lives we were made to live before God. Let's pray. God, to you be the glory for the great things you have done. You alone, O oh Lord. God, we are infected. We are infected with the disease to want ourselves more than we want you, the one who made us, 
the one who designed us, the one who loves us. God, show us what it means to live before you. Show us how to worship you truly. Help us to make you king in our hearts and in our lives. Help us when we sin to truly repent and help us cast our hope accurately, not in ourselves, but in Christ and Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen.